When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone and welcome back to Immigrantly with me Sadia Khan. Today I'm back with another great episode as usual but without a guest. If you've been listening to me for a while, you've probably noticed more of these narrative style episodes popping up compared to previous years. These past few months, we've discussed the case of Sofia Juarez and missing white girl syndrome. We've broken down the history of dog whistling in our everyday language. And of course, we've had our Christmas special exploring culture, history and family traditions. Don't worry, there are still plenty of guest interviews coming your way. But I've been doing more of these narrative style episodes because it's nice to just sit down and think through various topics with all of you. And you know what? I have a topic itching at my mind every now and then, and I don't necessarily have someone to interview about. And as we all know, things are happening all the time. Every time I pick up my phone, there's news about something somewhere. And so these narrative episodes are also a way of tackling these stories as they happen, as quickly as we can get information on them. And honestly, it's the perfect opportunity to hear more from all of you. So before I start the episode, if you have a specific topic that you would like the team and I to break down in these narrative episodes, let me know. You can send me a message on Instagram. Our handle is at ImmigrantlyPod or just shoot me an email at sadia at ImmigrantlyPod.com. Alright, so the topic for today is a relatively recent development and it's one that many of you already know about. Harvard's former president, Claudine Gay, resigned early this month after only about six months into her presidency. We're following breaking news this hour from the academic world. Harvard's president, Claudine Gay, is stepping down as the school's leader. Gay sparked major controversy last month after her testimony on Capitol Hill about protests on her campus over the Israel-Hamas war. Claudine Gay is set to resign, marking the shortest tenure of a presidency in the university's nearly 400-year history. In short, she came under fire throughout December after a congressional hearing that addressed the recent tensions on college campuses concerning Palestine and Israel. Gay, along with two other college presidents, were asked about how they've responded to such tensions on their campuses. Now, Gay in particular 
faced a lot of criticism because of the way she responded to claims of anti-Semitism at Harvard. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. And in my opinion, yes, she definitely could have handled this situation better. But I also want to note that based on the clips that I have seen, the members of Congress were cornering her answers quite a bit. They took certain words and phrases completely out of context. Gay's responses were ambiguous and indirect. I agree there. But depending on who you ask, people find Gay's response to campus tensions to be inadequate on both sides of the issue. Jewish students and Palestinian students felt that Gay responded inadequately to their grievances while she was president. Both sides feel that they were somewhat unsupported and that the other side was not criticized enough. Listen, to be honest, it's a tough position for her to be in either way. She may not have handled the situation perfectly well, but I also feel for her and I leave it at that. I do encourage all of you listening to my episode right now to do some research on your own if you're interested in this case. Now, shortly after the congressional hearing, Claudine Gay was accused of plagiarism. Apparently, several of her past academic publications were poorly cited. Although many sources, including the Harvard Corporation, say that her poor citations did not amount to plagiarism. Now look guys, I am not going to get into too much of the details here either about this because these cases against Claudine Gay aren't actually what today's episode is all about. Today, I'm mostly just interested in a topic that has come up in relation to the uproar over Claudine Gay. And that conversation, my friends, is on DEI initiatives and affirmative action. So how are these topics relevant to the Claudine Gay case? Well, Claudine Gay, if you weren't aware, is actually Harvard's first black president and first non-white president in general in the almost 400 years since its founding. Guys, this fact alone is so incredible when I found out that she is the first black president. I was shocked. Now to me, this is amazing and in fact long overdue. But the right-wing side of the internet has been calling Claudine Gay a quote-unquote diversity hire and further claiming that she was never qualified for the position in the first place. This type of sentiment is what inspired our today's episode because I want to talk about the way that certain circles have been weaponizing diversity initiatives to devalue and delegitimize the achievements of marginalized communities. Terms like diversity hire suggest that people from marginalized communities are otherwise underqualified for high positions. And this conversation is most often about race 
as opposed to other marginalized identities. So it suggests that they were only put in these positions because of their race and are otherwise not inherently smart enough to do the job. Which is a pretty racist belief, of course. I hope all of you agree with me there. Historically, we've seen this argument before in the case of affirmative action. Since the start of affirmative action, people have made similar claims, right? That it gets less qualified people into a job or into college. This conversation, however, goes beyond Claudine Gay. She's only one example of an issue that has been festering for a long time. So today, I want to unpack this and talk about Claudine Key, the comments about her qualifications, and how it relates to a bigger conversation around DEI. And in general, I want to debunk this label of diversity higher, how it can be particularly damaging to certain racial groups, and how it's also just incorrect. And at the very end, we'll discuss where we go from here. So please stick around until the very end. I think it's important to define what exactly DEI is. A lot of people throw the term around without actually thinking about what it really means. DEI or diversity, equity and inclusion is definitely not a new idea. The internet will have you believe that it's some new woke policy that started a few years ago. Not true. Uh, we had to uh, look at this new concept, relatively new concept, called diversity, equity, and inclusion. And um, I didn't know much. I mean, this is something relatively recent. I mean, Chris Rubo can talk about when this really started to percolate. I think it, it had probably been there a few years ago, but then kind of the post-BLM uh, rioting in the George Floyd summer of 2020, I think you saw it really take off. But the concept of DEI actually dates back to around the 60s during the civil rights movement. During that post-civil rights period, you had various federal laws that made America a more equitable place, in theory at least. For instance, public and private spaces, schools and companies could no longer turn someone down explicitly because of their identity. It's also important to note that identity included things like religion, gender, and culture, but it mainly concerned race. Despite these new policies, there were, of course, a lot of residual racial tensions. That's no surprise, really. I mean, racism isn't solved overnight, and racism is pretty alive and thriving in the United States of America. We can all agree on that, right? So, it wasn't enough to just diversify these places. We also needed practical systems and practices in place that made these spaces hospitable for their minority populations. That's where DEI came in. At its core, DEI goes beyond affirmative action. 
It's not just about having diversity. DEI strives to make these marginalized communities feel comfortable and welcome. DEI asks, how can we make marginalized voices heard and appreciated? How do we address historical inequalities and then work to reverse them? From the 60s till now, there have been several waves of DEI initiatives. And arguably, the most recent focus of DEI initiatives came after 2020 with the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Officials in Minneapolis hoping for calm tonight after a former police officer was charged with murder and manslaughter in the death of George Floyd. More than two years after Breonna Taylor was shot to death in a botched drug raid, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland today announcing federal charges for four current and former Louisville Metro Police officers. I'm sure we all remember how many companies during this time outwardly expressed support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Companies pledged to diversify their hiring practices, stand against anti-Black racism, and invest money into historically Black colleges and universities which tend to be underfunded. Netflix alone, for example, donated $120 million to HBCUs, which included scholarship opportunities for students. Not bad, right? And many companies either started or strengthened their DEI offices. In higher education, these initiatives look pretty similar. During and after 2020, universities examined the demographics of both the professors and the student body. Many departments revised their curriculum and administrations introduced or again strengthened diversity training programs. And schools also bolstered their DEI offices to support marginalized students who may face biases or discomfort in predominantly white institutions or PWIs. It's not that these efforts only started after 2020, as I previously said, but we definitely saw a strengthening of these programs and policies during this time. Now, to be fair, DEI initiatives have faced varying levels of backlash from conservatives and liberals alike. And I'm guilty of that. Just like literally everything else, DEI initiatives aren't perfect and often need tweaking. So, for those of us who are more progressive, our frustration, my frustration with DEI lies in the fact that it can often be superficial. One good example is the joke regarding university brochures. Have you seen those brochures? As many people have pointed out, universities might have a smiling group of black and brown students on the cover of a pamphlet advertising the school. But when you look at the actual demographics, I kid you not, the majority of the student body does not look like some multicultural utopia. And beyond that, the students of color that are actually there may still feel somewhat alienated and uncomfortable on campus. As far as companies and organizations, they are just as guilty, if not more. Here's an example. In 2022, a few NFL teams were accused of conducting fake interviews 
for head coach positions as a misleading show of diversity. NFL coach Brian Flores, who is black, said that the New York Giants and the Denver Broncos both interviewed him without actually wanting to consider him for the role. The Giants already had a different coach, a white coach lined up for the position even as they interviewed Flores. Humiliation, uh, uh, disbelief, um, uh, anger to go on at what was going to be a, what, what felt like or what was a sham interview. I was, uh, I was hurt. Can you believe that? I mean, it is messed up. And another team, the Broncos, were allegedly very unprofessional in their interview with Forrest. Apparently, executives showed up an hour late and hungover. Now guys, imagine someone doing this to you. Think about it. That's a sign of blatant disrespect by any standards. The interviews looked like they were seriously considering a black man for head coach position, but the behavior showed that these interviews were just a way to superficially comply with diverse hiring initiatives. And here are some statistics for you. To this day, about 70% of NFL players are black, but black people only account for about 11% of head coaches since 1990. So yeah, DEI policies like hiring practices can be superficial. There is still work to be done to ensure that black and brown people get fair opportunities and respect in the university and workplace, especially for higher ranking positions. So I am not saying that DEI is without fault. The conservative side of the internet also critiques DEI, but as you can probably guess, their concerns are different to say the least. Now, conservatives tend to critique DEI as racist or quote-unquote reverse prejudice against white people. So they say diversity, equity, and inclusion. And what they mean by that is shut up, right? They don't mean inclusion because if you have a, a point of view that argues with their own, then you should be quiet. And by equity, they mean, again, systems of power that have to be reversed. And as a result, they've been working to get rid of DEI altogether. For example, Florida governor, how can we not mention him? Ron DeSantis has banned Florida's public universities from spending money on DEI programs. Uh, DEI is, is better um, viewed as standing for discrimination, exclusion, and indoctrination. And that has no place in our public institution. And so this bill says uh, the whole experiment with DEI uh, is coming to an end in the state of Florida. We are eliminating the DEI programs. Uh, we are going to treat people as individuals. Uh, we're not going to treat people as members of groups. And it's also wrong how this has been implemented. It has been discriminatory. Keep in mind that DeSantis is the same guy who approved a new curriculum that teaches that African-Americans benefited from slavery by gaining valuable skills. Yeah, that guy. 
Soon after, DeSantis' bill on DEI, Texas, North Dakota, and Tennessee enacted similar bills, which banned diversity training practices for students and employees. Within conservative states like these, some universities are going even further by eliminating race-specific scholarships and funding. This basically seeks to erase the very real connection between race, opportunity, and income that has existed throughout U.S. history. There have been plenty of other similar examples of conservatives responding to DEI over the past few years, and most, if not all of them, operate under the belief that DEI puts a person's identity over the person's merit and capability. But like I said, we are here to debunk that. And before I do that, I want us to circle back to Claudine Kay. The conversation we just had on the history of DEI provides the perfect backdrop for the rest of this conversation. So take a deep breath and let's dive in. As I mentioned in the beginning, there was this eruption of anti-DEI commentary from conservative circles after Claudine Kay resigned. But more specifically, conservatives have been claiming that Kay herself represents the so-called failure of diverse hiring practices. A pretty big conservative voice throughout this conversation comes from a guy named Bill Ackman. He's a billionaire investor and in fact a former graduate of Harvard. He was also one of the primary people pushing for Claudine Gay's resignation, critiquing her plagiarism charges as a lack of qualification. I said, in light of her, what has been revealed about her academic record and what, we, what we've learned about plagiarism, I don't think she's qualified to serve on the faculty. Ackman further denounces DEI as racist against white people and basically doubts that there is such a thing as disadvantaged groups in the first place. Unfortunately today, if you criticize a person of color, regardless of the credibility of your accusations, you know, you're going to be accused of being racist. And that's not right. Honestly, listeners, how privileged do you have to be to believe in something so untrue? And unfortunately, he's not the only one saying things like these. Richard Hanania, a conservative political commentator, posted on Twitter that Claudine Gay was, quote, a diversity hire. An article we found from the Financial Post writes, and I quote, The controversy at Harvard University shows DEI has gone too far and the return of merit-based hiring is needed, unquote. This is an actual quote. Can you believe it? A lot of similar comments here, as we can see, right? But the biggest issue for me is the double standard that arises shortly after this. Soon after, Bill Ackman grilled Claudine Gay over her plagiarism charges, Ackman's wife, Mary Oxman, was accused of the same thing in her academic work. Mary's thesis, 330 pages. Business Insider found four paragraphs where she had used words and gave proper attribution but without quotation marks, four. And then one sentence where she missed an attribution. Right. By the way, the same person who she, whom she missed an attribution for 
She, she referenced eight other times and properly referenced that person. So, so if, I'm, if I'm an academic panel assessing this, no one's going to conclude that that's fraud. It's not even an important part of her thesis. Now, both Claudine Gay and Mary Oxman had several citation errors. Various sources argue that both Gay's and Oxman's are just examples of mistakes rather than full-blown plagiarism. But of course, Bill Ackman defended his wife's errors as pure mistakes, while denigrating Gay's errors as intentional plagiarism. Let's take a pause here. Let all of this information sink in. Do we see the irony? When Claudine Gay makes citation errors, she is an unqualified diversity hire. But when a billionaire's wife does it, she just made a simple, innocent mistake. That's what's so disturbing about this Claudine Gay case, right? People are quick to blame her errors on her diverse identity. And it suggests quite clearly that people like Claudine Kay, black women and black people in general, can never be in high-level positions without being attacked or threatened by this rhetoric around diversity hiring. Journalist and academic Jelani Kopp points out that this is not a new trend. We have seen, and our mentors, the people who prepared us to, to work in this arena, saw time and again the way that African-Americans' credentials and qualifications are questioned. Doesn't matter uh, you know, how distinguished you are. Doesn't matter what you've achieved uh, or what your laurels may be. But the presumption is that you don't belong in this arena. If we take the congressional hearing as another example, yes, Gay inadequately addressed campus tensions like many other college presidents, but conservatives are dangerously, and I say dangerously intentionally, linking this one person's wrongdoings onto marginalized communities as a whole and saying this is why DEI is harmful. But listeners, at the end of the day, Claudine Gay is one person. She's an individual and her actions do not and cannot reflect those of any larger community. I say this all the time. Her mistake does not make her automatically underqualified and it damn sure doesn't make every black woman in a high position an underqualified diversity higher either. That's a characterization that the other college presidents at the congressional hearing simply didn't face. You know, sometimes I think it's comments like these that can really endanger feelings of inferiority among black and brown students in higher ed. We, as black and brown women, should not be doubting our capabilities and our overall right to be in the places that we earn. And yet, various sources share that people of color, women of color, and black women in particular, face higher levels of imposter syndrome in higher education and in the workplace. And it's no wonder when people on the internet have this 
derogatory term diversity hire in their back pocket marginalized communities shouldn't have to shoulder the weight of imposter syndrome and anxiety right instead we really truly have to dismantle the systems in place that cause this line of thinking in the first place so before i wrap up this episode let's recap by debunking a lot of opinions we confronted today myth number 1 dei is inherently racist against white people not true nope when done right dei is meant to respond to and minimize the very real prejudice that various marginalized communities in the us still face people like bill ackman and ron desantis say that minority groups no longer face discrimination or biased perceptions and that discrimination is a thing of the past that's the biggest biggest lie that you could ever ever hear and the research will show you that this belief isn't simply true we have to ask ourselves this and please pay close attention who do we see represented in tv and movies which types of people face damaging stereotypes what communities experience disproportionate levels of poverty which groups sit in positions of power this is ti is not meant to separate white people from black and brown communities rather ti is supposed to be a safe communal space where students and employees can seek support from others who understand what they may be going through myth number 2 dei values diversity over merit again untrue this dangerously suggests that people from diverse populations are less likely to be smart enough capable enough or hard working enough to earn their positions the hypocrisy here drives me crazy america has not always been a meritocracy we know that there was a time in america's not so distant past when you could not have certain opportunities because of your race your gender or both combined and by the way how many underqualified white people have been presidents of schools ceos managers politicians and of course presidents of the country think about it now if your answer is none that's simply not true that would suggest that every white person who has held any position of power has done it perfectly every time it's not possible that's not human and if you believe that well that my friends is white supremacy on the contrary there are many imperfect people everywhere in every race and there are many practices that directly or indirectly privilege whiteness over merit one forbes article from 2014 reports that white high school dropouts are about as likely to land positions as black college graduates and then you have likely heard of legacy my favorite topic for example in college admissions which basically gives preference to applicants whose families attended the school as well this disproportionately caters to white people 
since for much of America's history, anyone who wasn't white could not apply to these schools at all. And if they could, their chances were still few and far between. So, white families were building a legacy of higher education, while most black and brown folks were still trying to fight for basic rights. Look, I have said this before, and I'll say it again. DEI isn't perfect. And I've been honest about it on this episode. I've talked about it in previous episodes of the podcast. But that doesn't mean DEI should be scrapped completely. Conservatives in particular are targeting DEI for all the wrong reasons. Instead of seeking to genuinely understand why there is a need for DEI in the first place, they just label it as a woke liberal political strategy meant to indoctrinate people. The irony is that DEI is trying to reverse a lot of the implicitly problematic ideologies that we already have in the US. And here's the thing. I want to know if these white conservatives speaking out about DEI consume information and content from a diverse selection of people. Think about it. I am willing to bet that they rarely read books by black and brown authors or watch TV shows or movies starring black and brown people. Guys, that's the first step. At the very least, we should all expose ourselves to people who have different life experiences from our own. At the end of the day, America is a diverse place. That's a fact. There are different groups of people here. It's easy to write other people off and say, well, there is no such thing as discrimination. There is no need for DEI. But how would you know when you don't even expose yourself to the lives of the people you're making statements about? But you know what? That's what I hope to do here on Immigrantly. I want to share my story and the stories of people around me in the hopes that someone else will listen and have a bit more empathy and understanding for those around them. Honestly, it's my way of challenging the biases and harmful perceptions I see around me. It's my way of making this country and this world a better place to be. So here's what I've done for this episode. Linked in the show notes, you'll find a list of books that discuss DEI in a lot more detail. And if you don't have the time to physically read something right now, I've also linked a number of documentaries that discuss DEI topics as well. I would also like to share some more stories with you from none other than the banned book list. Now, many conservative groups have been banning various books in public schools. This has been on the rise since 2020. And surprise, surprise, a lot of these books are from the same marginalized identities that DEI initiatives seek to uplift. So check out the show notes of this episode to see the banned book lists from recent years, which include titles like The Bluest Eye and Gender Queer. And listeners, if you have more recommendations for content on this topic, if you have any personal stories to share, 
please reach out to me and let me know. I would be happy to share your thoughts and recommendations in our next episode. You can always write to me, email me, ping me on social media, or simply send me a voice memo. I hope this episode put things in perspective for you. I know it's a lot of information to process, to think about, to sit with, but I trust you. I believe in your commitment to learning, in your commitment to understanding others' perspectives. So thank you once again for spending some time with me, my thoughts, what I had to present in this episode. This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan, written by Michaela Strather. The editorial review is done by Shay Yu. Our sound designer and editor for this episode of Immigrantly is Hazik Ahmed Farid. The music for Immigrantly is done by Simon Hutchinson. Come back next week for an incredible guest interview. Until then, take care and be kind to yourselves and to others. <laughs>